uh, I thought about Psalm 51, and we all have the benefit of knowing the end from the beginning about that story, but sometimes we don't recognize what did David do to require him to write a psalm of repentance? What kind of sin did he have in his life? And again, Second uh, Samuel is, is a passage of Scripture that all of us have learned either in Sunday school, we've learned in a Bible conference, whatever. But in order to understand Psalm 51, you've got to understand Second Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphone, your iPad, your Kindle, I want you to turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 11, and hopefully I'm going to give a little bit of insight to why Psalm 51 was written. The Bible says that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, it's very interesting to note there that this is not just biblical, but also secular writings lead us to believe that good kings who were in charge of city-states and nations, the spring of the year, after the winter time and all of the bad weather, is when they would all go out to battle. But David didn't go this time. And it's very interesting to me that he sent, instead of him going himself, he sent General Joab and servants, which could mean soldiers, with him. And then all of Israel was supportive of this engagement in battle. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, again, if you read in the book of 1 Samuel and David's calling, the youngest son of Jesse, he, he comes to the kingship after King Saul had tried to murder him numerous times, and then David finally comes and ascends to the throne. That David is a very victorious, he's like the general Patton of Israel. Every battle that he fought in and he led in, they would win. But it's almost like a turning of the page from 2 Samuel 10 to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and David remains at Jerusalem. So the first lesson that we need to learn from David's life today is not being in the right place leads to trouble. And, and, in fact, if, if David had gone out to battle and lead his troops like he had done previously, we may not even have this narrative. We may not even have this particular story in its form. How many of us know that not being in the right place leads to trouble? Of course we do. And, and all of us are guilty as charged. I, I know thinking back as I was studying this past week and thinking through some scenarios that I found myself in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And then asking God, Lord, you got to help me out here. Lord, bless my mess. Get me out of here. And and on occasion, sometimes the Lord would just let me walk through the valley of the shadow myself and, and help me to realize, you know, I just need to make better decisions. I need to make right decisions based upon the, the accumulated knowledge and wisdom that God had given me. So not being in the right place leads to trouble. It also leads to verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now, I don't think kings should take naps, amen? David should have been where he was supposed to be leading his troops, but he's taking a nap. He's on the couch. So he walks on the roof of the king's house. My time in Israel showed me that a lot of the old architecture is not the gabled roofs that we have presently that allow the shingles to be placed upon there and the rainwater to run off. No, most of the houses were flat a thousand years before Jesus was born during the reign of David. So he's walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Another interesting tidbit that, that most Hebrews 
during that time would bathe on the roof. Now, I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but sure enough, that's what they did because the sun would warm the water and you didn't have to take a cold bath. And the woman was very beautiful. There shouldn't be any sin with us as a male looking at a beautiful female and go, man, she's a beautiful woman. Or a young lady looking at a man saying, he's handsome. And in fact, in that context, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful about that. But it's how you react or respond to that, which brings us our second point. What you see and how you react to it matters. So things are going to happen in my life. There's things going to happen in your life. And how we react to those things which we see, it matters. Because all of us are one bad decision away from a whole lot of chaos. And all the people said... And, and maybe there are things that you've been thinking about, considering, but you hadn't prayed about, and you've already made a decision. You're going, whoo, maybe I didn't pray about this the way that I was supposed to. And I know that all of us are potentially guilty in this area, but, but David, first of all, was not in the right place. He should have been leading his troops, and then he's walking out on his roof, some, an innocent walk or stroll, if you will, but he sees a woman, and he does not react the way that he's supposed to. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. He's the king. It's good to be the king, okay? So I'm inquiring about this woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, now, if David had been walking in the Spirit and doing what he was supposed to while he was walking on the roof, he would have shut it down after he got that information. So if there was at least one person that was not an enabler in his inner circle. And they told David the truth. This woman's married. This woman should be off limits. And then, let me just add a little bit right here, leave her alone. So I'm very grateful that there was someone, and one said, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. But verse 4 is part of the problem. So David sent messengers and took her. He's the king. You can't tell the king no. She came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, this is not an episode of 24. This just didn't happen overnight. We're talking about an ongoing affair over the course of days, weeks, or even months, and she reveals to him, I am now with child. I am now pregnant. Which leads us to point number three. Sin always takes you farther than you ever wanted to go. David just wanted to have a fling. David just wanted to have some fun. He just wanted to take care of some of his male needs, and yet now there's a consequence. Sin always promises on the front side, you've got this. You can control me. But in the end, the sin rises up and says, I now control you. It happened to King David in 1000 B.C. It happens to us in 2021. And the sooner you and I come to that little bit of wisdom, that little nugget of knowledge, if you will, the better off we're going to be. So sin always takes us farther than we ever wanted to go. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Hmm. I wish I could go into this entire verse-by-verse -verse narrative, but for time's sake, let's just, let me give you the cliff notes. 
So Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is out fighting. He's a, maybe a platoon leader on the front lines. He's a great soldier, very well respected in the army. So David says, I got to cover this up. I got to cover up my sin. So I'm going to bring Uriah back. He's going to miss his wife so bad. They're going to get together, and then he'll think the baby is his. He's, David's got it all figured out. You know, how many of us have thought in the past we had it all figured out? I'm going to manipulate this situation. I'm going to be deceiving. I'm going to be deceptive. I've got it all worked out. Well, guess what? Uriah was an honorable man, and he wouldn't go sleep with his wife. Tick David off. It ticked him off so bad that he gave Uriah a letter and said, when you get back to the front line, give this to the general. You know what the letter said? Put Uriah at the front lines, remove the reinforcements, and hopefully he'll die. And that's exactly what happened. So David made Bathsheba a widow. And then he brings her into his house. Which brings us to point number four. Can you relate? Covering your sin will make you do crazy things. I've been a pastor a long time. I've had a lot of stories give, given to me on the other side of the desk. People trying to justify nonsense. People trying to let me know it was just a, you know, a, a moment in time that I messed up. Oh, I, I, I could write a book. But yet, I look in the mirror sometime and go, hmm, I probably would have done the same thing. Covering your sin will make you do crazy things. Let me just go ahead and throw this in as a side caveat. I think the reason why David felt emboldened and entitled to do whatever he wanted to do, he had a bunch of enablers and sycophants around him that told him, oh, you're the best king. Oh, you're so wonderful. You know, you've been a great leader in battle. You know, so you, you deserve, I mean, you know, Bathsheba, even though she is married and I know it's against God's law to do this, you know what, you deserve that. How many of us know somebody in our family? How many of us know somebody in our circle of friends that got that same mindset and they stepped off into the abyss? We've all been there. Now, some have made the right decision and we stepped away from the abyss, but others have plunged headlong into it. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. We don't need a bunch of enablers around us. We need people who will speak truth to power and also share it with love. Notice 2 Samuel 12. I'm going to read portions of a few verses here. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, look at verse 7. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, this is not uh, saying, David, you're the man. No, that's not what this is saying. He's saying, David, you're the man. Because if you read between verses 2 and verses 6, you'll see a Nathan sort of giving a story, uh, a parable, if you will. And David responds to the parable that says, that man should die. Nathan was talking about David. And then he says, David, you're the man in my story. You're the guilty party. You're the one who's taken the little ewe lamb that was supposed to be for someone else, referring to Bathsheba and Uriah. You're the man. Look at verse 13. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, this is where I begin to respect David again because he was called out and he didn't give an excuse. All these years in ministry, sometimes I am asked by a family member or someone, will you speak to this person? Sure. And I'll speak to them, and most of the time, probably 98% of the time, they give me an excuse. Well, it was so-and-so's fault. You know, it really wasn't me. 
Who, what are you talking about? They'll just out and out lie to you. But David didn't do that. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Not only have I sinned against Uriah, not only have I sinned against Bathsheba, not only have I sinned against Israel, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Thus the psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. There's sometimes a consequence to our sin that is almost unbearable. And again, friends, I've been doing this long enough, and I've been with enough family members who have, who have said things and done things, and then they ask God to forgive them. And I believe God, by the blood of Jesus, forgives them, but they have set a series of dominoes into effect, and then it has a consequence. And in this particular situation, the baby dies. And then it says that Nathan went to his house. Which brings us to my fifth and final point based on 2 Samuel. Be sure your sin will find you out. I'll have uh, clever guys that'll come in and talk to me sometimes and think they've gotten away with it. Whatever it is. And I'll let them know and I'll say, listen, brother, I love you. But I'm not here to enable you and tell you that everything's going to be all right. But I want you to know either now or at some point in time, you're going to give an account for your sin. And if you're unwilling to repent of it, one day you will be found out with your hand in the proverbial cookie jar. I pray it don't get on the front page of the News Courier, the Decatur Daily, or the Huntsville Times, or find itself on some social media platform. But understand and know your sin will find you out. So, well, Joel, why do you say that? Well, it's scriptural. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says your sin will find you out. So, Joel, what do I do then if I've got all this baggage in my past? What do I do? You repent. But you don't repent because you got caught. You repent because it's the right thing to do. Oh, there's been many a politician. There's been many a church leader. There have been many an athlete who are sorry for getting caught. But they're not sorrowful unto God. And they will choose to say, I will not commit this sin again. So here's the context. You recognize David sinned a very grievous sin. And now, because he's a psalmist, he pens this beautiful Psalm 51. I can't go verse by verse to the whole 20-something verses, so let me give you just a little glimpse of what happens. Pick up reading with me in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, our sermon title, and renew a right spirit within me. I do not believe the adultery caused David to lose his salvation I believe the adultery and the result of the adultery with the baby dying stole his joy. I, I come in contact with a lot of joyless believers as a pastor. And then once I find out their narrative, I have the burden of knowing what they're walking through, what they're going through, conversations that, that have happened in the past and even things that are going on in the present. So I believe that in, in David's life, his heart had become darkened, maybe like some of ours. And nobody has done this to us. It's because of decisions that were bad, we have done it to ourselves. We felt entitled to have a little fun, a little fling on the side, and now it's bitterness. And we knew better. I was raised in church. I, I know how I'm supposed to speak. I know how I'm supposed to live. But yet, it happened anyway. I see it all the time. 
It's what I've been called to do, to minister to people who are broken. But where does the sin action begin? It begins with a sin thought. We begin to fantasize. We begin to create things in our brain. Then our thought life becomes polluted. And I just want to stand before you today as your pastor and let you know that you can't entertain evil thoughts and ideas and not expect some of those things to come true. And, of course, here was David, who was the king, filled with pride and arrogance. He thought he could get away with it. All of his victories on the battlefield had led him to a self-reliance instead of walking by faith. And let me tell you what some of us do. Some of us in this room have great careers. We can look back over the course of our life, we can look at our resume and go, man, I was good. Look what all I've accomplished. Look what all I've done. And when that happens, you start believing that it was you instead of the one who created you. And then you look at the life of David based upon his repentance, that he was not looking to be restored by God so that he could go back and do the same old thing and have another affair. No, he realized, I've broken God's heart. I've broken God's law. I need repentance. But let me tell you where some of us are today. Some of you at home. Some of you here on campus, Proverbs 26 and 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I have conversations with some folks on almost a weekly and a, definitely a monthly basis who don't do different stupid things. They keep doing the one stupid thing over and over and over again as a dog returns to the vomit. It's in that dog's nature to do that. It's in our sin nature to do likewise. So I can either keep enabling him or her to do that, or I can step into their life and give them truth that could set them free. You and I are not called to be an enabler of someone's sin. You and I are to step in there in love and go, there's a better way. There is a different way. Now again, how I love how New Testament over and over again validates Old Testament. We see one of the men of failure in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter. Notice what he says about it in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, thus Proverbs 26 and 11. But then he adds to it. And the sow, we would call that a pig or a hog or bacon in Alabama, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. A pig's going to do what a pig does. You can clean it up. You can put perfume on it. It sees a pig pen. It's going to go and get in the mud. It's the same way with our depravity of sin. It's who we are. And the only combat and warfare against that action is the Holy Spirit. That's why we got to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Because I don't care who you are or what your resume says or, or what your background or your last name is, every one of us are susceptible to what David did and far worse unless we're walking in Spirit. That's why we have to constantly evaluate our spiritual disciplines. How is our prayer life? How is our reading and meditating upon Scripture? How, 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 are we li how are we treating those who are closest to us and are around us? Now again, David wants God to change him from the inside out. Now see what a lot of us are very satisfied in doing is just cleaning up the outside. As long as my cup, we can talk about the Pharisees for a moment, as long as my cup looks presentable, I'm good. But he says, no, don't just clean the outside of the cup. Don't be like a whitewashed tomb. Make sure that the inside is cleaned out and only Jesus 
can clean up the inside. Which leads us to verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Father, do not give up on me. I need his presence every millisecond of every second of every minute of every hour of every day. You don't want to see Joel without Jesus. I could be a rascal with a capital R. Now, number one, I believe God would chasten me and Joe would kill me. Amen? Just being quite honest. But the point being, I need God's presence. And what David chose to do walking on that rooftop that day, he became entitled, he became self-reliant, and he made a very bad choice that we're still talking about 3,000 plus years later. Now, probably our sin is not going to be thought about past next week. But it's still sin against a holy God, and it matters. I am powerless without the Holy Spirit in my life. You are powerless without the Holy Spirit in your life, which leads us to verse 12. David writes, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice he didn't say my salvation. Sometimes we misquote that verse. Restore to me the joy of your salvation because salvation is not earned, it's freely given by grace. So it's your salvation that's been given to us and uphold me with a willing spirit. There are some of us watching today, there are some of us here today, you hadn't lost your salvation but you've lost your song. What are you talking about, Joel? When things aren't as you believe they should be, you lose your song. And I'm not just talking about a very gifted accompaniment or a, a gifted musician or a, a gifted soloist. I'm not just talking about losing that song. I'm talking about all of those of us who are not musical, but sometimes we even lose our song. Not our soul, but our song. How do we restore our song? David gives us an example, repentance and the forsaking of sin. And I don't know what you've got going on. I, I don't know that maybe on the outside publicly we're good. But maybe internally we're wrestling and there's tension going on. And prayerfully today we'll be led to repentance and the forsaking of that sin. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. So now David, the recipient of the grace of God, says because I'm in a position of authority, I can teach others and sinners will return to you. Now again, the context is David, 1,000 years before Jesus is born, is letting the people of his day know that you as a sinner can return to God and you can learn by my failure. I will teach transgressors the ways of God. What are the ways of God? Mercy and grace and peace based upon repentance. And maybe today, and maybe almost the last six years, I've not shared with you enough of my failures, my fumbles, my flops. I, I, I stand before you today as imperfect and flawed as any pastor you've ever had in the 201-year history of our church. But because of that, I've tasted his grace. I've drank from the cup of mercy. And therefore, I stand before you today saying, I want you to learn, not from just a textbook, and a textbook can teach you a lot of things, but experience in the textbook, because then it's real. Then we can apply it in my sin, in your sin, whatever it may be. 
I think David now gives us a little glimpse because I think he was feeling bad about being an accessory to the murder of Uriah. He says in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Again, the guilt of Uriah's blood was upon him. Now, I think that based upon his repentance, and again, based on our repentance, we're cleansed, but how many of us in our head... We know what's happened in our heart, but it's tough to let go. I'm going to raise my hand first. Well, about seven of us, okay. The rest of y'all are so godly. I mean, I, wow. No, I, I think if we understood that, that every one of us understand that we've been forgiven and washed, but then there's the memories of my past. There's my stuff in the rearview mirror. Man, of how many times I was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong folk. How many times in my life, how, how many times in your life and we've been there? So deliver me from blood guiltiness. Deliver me from the baggage of my past is what I believe David was trying to say. And then lastly, let me land the plane. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We pastors get to go what's called Bible conferences and pastors conferences and on occasion I'll I'll stand there and I'll be with some pastor buddies around me and the words will come up on a screen and boy, we're all, man, we're singing and sometimes the guy beside me or maybe the guy in front of me, they're just standing there. And it's not that they don't like the music, it's that they've lost their song and their lips have been sealed shut by their sin. I think David, who wrote numerous psalms, this hymn book of the Old Testament, even a hymn book to Israel today, I think when God opened up his lips again after his grievous sin was some of his most beautiful writing because that writing came out of brokenness. His writings didn't come out of his pride and his arrogance and his self-reliance. I think some of the greatest even secular books that have been written have come from brokenness. It's been the narrative and the life story of people who have overcome. And out of their brokenness, they're able to share and people can relate. You know, super, super Christians annoy me. Can I just be honest? And I, and I mean that with all the respect I can, but there, there's sometimes that there is a projection that everything's perfect all the time. And it's never perfect all the time for any of us regardless of what he or she may portray. And see, this is what's dangerous. We are far more like David than we are Nathan. We have this inclination to sin that unless we're being led and walking in the Spirit, we could find ourselves in some same or similar sin that we've read about today. But praise God, we don't have to be. We can be spirit-filled and walk in the spirit. And I pray that's what we'll do.